Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Charles Miglietti, CEO and co-founder of Tucan Toco, a SaaS business management platform that simplifies the process of data analysis and visualization. He advocates for driving productivity through data to build products effectively. And I'm really excited to learn how exactly you're doing this. So happy to have you here. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. Well, it's so great that you've seen founder of Bcast, one of the founders, one of the companies that we have recently acquired, have introduced us. Let's maybe start with your background. How did you end up in SaaS and building Tucan in the first place? Yeah. So um, Tucan was not my first, but my second company. And I have a background in engineer. I was passionate about data, utilization, design, and pedagogy. And that's how I started Tucan nearly 10 years ago. Our mission, which is was and still is, to bring data in the hands of as many people as possible, to make data uh, actionable, to make data usable. And today, uh, we focus on customer-facing analytics. So it means that we provide uh, independent software vendors with the best solution to integrate within their product to build their own X offering. So that's what we do today. So yeah, it's been nearly 10 years. Uh, at the beginning, we bootstrapped the business for the first four or five years, and we raised a series A with Walletton Capital four years ago. Right. Okay. Well, uh, that's quite a journey already, but how did the inspiration for the product came to you? Like, uh, yeah, sure. There, there is passion for, for data. There is passion for design. How do you pair that and, uh, you know, realize that there is actually a problem to be solved and this is the product that a lot of people want, not just, not just you. Yeah. And so with my uh, co-founder at that time, uh, Kilian, we uh, realized that all the data products were built for technical users. They were like basically Excel's on steroids. Uh, so very uh, hard to use, hard to learn, hard to master. Uh, and our conviction is that uh, it should be what we sell, what we say, convention over configuration, and that um, those data products should be as easy to use as a B2C application. So this is, that was our starting point, how we can not obviously take the opposite, but at least take another angle from the data product and try to design the interface, the UX, the workflows, uh, so that uh, my mother or, or somebody that's purely non-technical can uh, make the most out of it. So yeah, that was our, our, our starting point. Uh, really create adoption, can usage, um, and at the end, bring the value that the data can bring in the hands of as much people as possible. Okay, sounds good. You're not the first founder that says we tested on my mom. <laughs> and if she, if she understood, it's good enough for our, for our customers. So that's perfect. Great, great strategy. So you started as a bootstrap company. Let's cover that period maybe. So as a bootstrap company, doing data visualization, doing business intelligence, 
how did you get to your first customers? Because this is not in the easiest niche to operate in as is. And as a, a small early stage bootstrap company, I imagine you've had some challenges. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the first client, so during well, when we were bootstrap during the, at least the first two years, we managed to balance between building the product, building the SaaS product we wanted to sell and also operating some services to serve uh, customers that were in need of more data visualization more broadly. So our first customers were customers that wanted to uh, make some nice and good looking data visualization. And we managed to find them and to sign them based on, I would say, local meetings, close relationship, friend of friends, networks. At the end, that's a very patent need and very, all organizations at some point have this need of communicating the data, uh, making sense of the data, uh, creating good stories based on the data. So pitch, was, it was very easy with our pitch to get in touch in the first meetings with many people. So, and at the end, we managed to, to sign a good amount of business uh, the, from outside the first year and we grew year over year and at some point also reached on to a pure size business in 2016. Okay, sounds great. Yesterday we had an AMA with the VP of marketing of Chartmogul and this is what we talked about. Like there are so many free opportunities for, for booster founders to go out there and find customers and engage with the audience. And this is exactly what you're talking about. So how did you navigate your roadmap at this early stage? Because you already said that it wasn't your first business, but how much did you know already about data visualization and data storytelling? By the way, when I read data storytelling, I was like, okay, that's very interesting. You paired something so kind of boring <laughs> with something that is so hype and so important for businesses and you made it work. So uh, I really want to get deeper into that, but let's first talk about uh, the strategies that you use for your roadmap. Yeah, so for the roadmap, what we used at the, at the beginning uh, was very, in some sense, easy <laughs> in the sense that we went after a very small set of clients and we focus all those clients to very specific needs, which was uh, what specific need, which is how they can make like a very dynamic, beautiful, good looking and interactive. So how we prioritize, we use like classical, like rice methodologies where we have like many, I would say initiative feature, features we request, and then try to maximize the reach, the impact, while also ensuring that we have like a good estimate, good confidence on, on the on those initiatives. We conducted also a few for any features, uh, a good amount of user testing. Uh, and our goal was also to be very close to our client where when we will be releasing something. So all that we dev everything that we developed, we wanted to make sure that it had all our clients would benefit from that. Okay. And I cannot not notice that you're all, all, always saying how beautiful the product and how beautiful the data visualization was supposed to be. And that was kind of the core of the product. This is what you wanted to yeah. differentiate yourself with, great yeah. design. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 
there is a, a heavy focus since the beginning on UI and UX. I would say I would call it the sexiness of the data because, yeah, uh, like you mentioned, merging like data and storytelling like boring concepts with something uh, fancy and interesting. Yeah, very important when you say, okay, I want to re-enchant, make it uh, uh, fun, make it entertaining in some sense, the data, you have to do something because you, you come from a long way where people are used to dull interface, very complex, very, not buggy, but very like, yeah, cumbersome interfaces. And mm -hmm. it was, and it's still one of the most important uh, driver uh, to deliver something that when somebody is looking at it, they say, wow, that's really, really different. Uh, than what I used to see. Yeah. For us, that's clearly a differentiator. Right. Well, and I have to say, when I went to the website to like research about what you're doing, what you put out there, I was like, okay, wow, this is not your usual data kind of product. It's really pretty. So <laughs> great design. I have to give you that. Thank you. All right. Well, something else that I noticed on the website is just the amount of information that you're sharing as just the sophistication of everything you put in your blog, just step-by-step, step, everything that you put out about the product, about the new features, about the case-by-case -case scenarios. How did you come up with that? Was it your strategy from the very beginning to educate your customers, to work on your SEO and on your content marketing, or that came after you raised the money? Since the, not the beginning, but after a few years, when you, I would say when your product is in some sense ready, uh, you know who you want to go after and you have like a clear messaging, a clear positioning, yeah, we, we started to invest in uh, our website, in our content marketing to make sure we educate our leads as much as possible. So it's not an overnight project. Uh, it's the results of many years of work that you, what you see here, even if like uh, often you need to revamp, readapt, uh, rewrite and, and adjust what you've done. But uh, yeah, I would say it's not after we raised the money that we decided to invest in content marketing. Uh, we uh, used to do that before because content marketing, your website being clear about your value proposition, it's uh, mandatory for me uh, for any uh, acquisition uh, strategy. And as our strategy relied half on inbound and half on outbound, yeah, it's important to have like a, a, a very strong website with like good copywriting and also differentiated copywriting because uh, uh, you are in an industry where in a space where uh, there are, are lots of noise and lots of uh, um, alternatives or lots of products and you need to stand out and you need to your prospects and the people that are evaluating you need to understand how you're different how you will uh, uh, serve them yeah, differently and better than the others okay yeah that makes sense all right so since we started talking about growth and well, you're serving your clients with providing them better ways to visualize the data and analyze the data. What for you were the success metrics and the data that you were tracking from the very beginning to analyze your growth? And did you use Tukan to do that? 
So we, we used to get since a few years only, I would say. Uh, yeah, during yeah, we start to use tokens since in, just before we raised the Series A. For me, it was important to when we were doing our Series A funding to show that we were our own users of the platform. Uh, so the data we track, I would say, for me, it's like very classical data that any SaaS business is tracking: our growth, gross margin, and but also uh, CAC, LTV. So all those. Uh, we say the classical SaaS uh, KPIs. The basics. Yeah. Yeah. All right. How, in in your personal opinion, or what served you well, uh, how do you think businesses can better understand what KPIs are important for them, especially at the early stages? Because at the early stages, you kind of want to do everything. You want to try everything. And... Uh, analyze everything at the same time so how to focus and how to really understand yeah. what are the important kpis to track and what is there for you yeah that that's a very good question and I, I can say that there is no one answer because what you describe here for me it's the work of the leadership team uh, to mm-hmm. assess at a given point in time what's the best KPI to follow to that are in line with the strategy and that are the best to follow to make sure that we go to the next step. So depending on your stage, depending on where you come from, where you want to, where you're heading, very, for me, very, very different. So the, what's very important in what you said is focus because you can do it all and you can be maximizing and optimizing all KPIs on 10 uh, lever. So you need to choose one, two, three. Uh, This is what we did uh, uh, in the company since the beginning as we introduced very early on the OKR methodology and trying to set clear overall metrics like no star metrics not only the product in the company that we would follow and like i said it could be like very simple metrics like at the beginning the growth or the margin but uh, after it can be more like are you looking at your win rate for specific use case or your conversion rates in some part of the funnels depending on what you want to assess what you want to improve what you want to act on you need to determine the the right metrics that will be like a good proxy to measure success or failure but you can't be on all fronts at the same time looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers.
Okay, thank you. I think that's a great answer. Focus is very important. And uh, yeah, no matter how much you want to test and iterate at the early stages. I would say that early on in the process, in the, in the life of a, of a startup, I think the most important metrics I will be looking for are more the one in term, that, that uh, show there is a good echo of the messaging and the positioning on the market for the leads and the prospects. So very, I will be very... Uh, I'll be looking at like all the leads and lead conversion metrics because this is where it starts. It starts, do you have a, a good messaging, a good positioning, and also like something that really responds to a need. So I wouldn't at the beginning focus on, for example, on growth or on more like bottom lines of the PLs before you are sure that what you want to do, what you are building, really solves a, a need for a specific niche. Right. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it definitely gets more complicated the more uh, a company grows. So let's get there. At a certain point, you decided that you needed to scale. And for that reason, you raised $12 million. So started rapidly scaling. As far as I understood from what I read in your blog, uh, you hired more than 100 people all over the globe, which is a lot. Uh, we're also growing really, really fast at SaaS Group. And it's a bit of a challenge to integrate everybody and to make sure, you know, the culture is aligned and everyone is on the same page. So how did it go for you? Why did you decide in the first place that you wanted that rapid growth? And how did it affect the company, the culture, and the people that were already there? Yeah, that's a good question. So we decided to take that route because uh, I would say it was for us a will. We wanted to follow that path of the yeah, Series A and have like a, a knowledgeable people that could help us in the journey. So very important. It was very important for us to be backed by uh, entrepreneurs by uh, professionals that will help us uh, scale and scale uh, quickly. Uh, also, uh, it's uh, a market where, <laughs> in some sense, you need funding to grow faster and to take the market shares that otherwise go to the competitors. And, and, and also for us, it was exciting to, I would say, get more money budget for our uh, project. So when you are bootstrapped, you are usually very limited in terms of the investment you can make. And to be successful at some point, uh, you need to make some significant investment in some part of your company. And it takes some time to, to get the payback. So, yeah. Right, absolutely. So why did you decide that, I guess, the biggest allocation of the funds was going to go to hiring? And what did it mean for the culture of the company and the people that were there yeah. from the beginning. Yeah, so at, at our size, I would say it's the, the money you raise is mostly for hiring because we don't have like lots of cogs. We have a, a very high cost margin. So the thing we need to, where we invest is mostly people and you need to invest in people to accelerate your roadmap in the product, to accelerate your go-to-market strategy. So that's why you, yeah, most of the budget goes to hiring. And in terms of culture and people, where uh, I'm very proud and this is a work that we've done very early on in the company is to define 
a very strong core set of core values and company culture. So we did that when we were only like five or six in the company. And as we hired more and more and more in scale, we were very, very diligent to make sure that anybody that is joining the company reflects the culture, embody the culture. Uh, so I would say making sure that uh, the hiring doesn't break your culture or your values was part of the of the process because we very early on we invested in that. Uh, so I won't tell you that you have some failed hires or people that at the end doesn't uh, don't fit, but we had very 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 minimum attrition in terms of people because uh, we invested a lot uh, early on in defining who should be uh, joining the company how the process should be structured and making sure also that there is some kind of peer review before anybody joins. So there is like a thumbs up, thumbs down, uh, like team fit, where you can, everybody can give their own opinion, the people that will be joining. So very useful to use that as a safeguard to make sure that you, you hire the right people. Okay, that's, that's brilliant. I think uh, so many so many founders are talking about the way they integrate people into the culture, but also about the way they hire the people that would integrate better in the first place, right? So they, they are looking for a specific person, for a specific set of skills and, and for a specific set of, I don't know, the vibe, the overall attitude towards work exactly. and everything. So I think, yeah, that's a great strategy. All right. Well, I want to talk about something else, a kind of a turning point for Token, maybe for you personally. You, during the expansion of the company, first you expanded to Spain, then it was Netherlands, and then it was the US, right? And you moved to the US for that reason. Yeah. So why was it important for you to be there in order to penetrate the market? Yeah, so being in the U.S. was very important because for the culture, important to understand the market. Uh, uh, so I decided to move because, you know, when you want to hire the right people, if you want to convince your first clients, uh, you need to show that you are really dedicated and committed and you are here and you are part of their country, of their culture. And that's why I decided to move. So for me, I consider Chicano as a French-American company, uh, even if the headquarters mm -hmm. is in France, me as CYM in the US, and very important to, to show that we are not just like a French player trying to acquire uh, companies uh, in different countries, but show that yeah, we, we care about our customers, we care about understanding the market, the culture, and, and we want to grow sustainably and, and yeah with with conviction in the market okay and i, I wouldn't i wouldn't just note that i found this article of yours or a blog post uh where you're talking about the move and about the way that you've learned about the market and how you decided not to go to external consultants or the agency to help you do that so I, I think that was that really reflects what you were saying. You you wanted to learn about your customers yourself. You moved yourself and well your family. I guess some of the team members as well. There, what do you think is or was important for you 
in order to understand that new culture, in order to understand how to get into the new market without the use of the agency? And what would be your advice for other founders that, that maybe want to enter new markets and don't know how to do it? So for me, it's direct exposition to sales cycle and to hiring process. And that's for the business, but also for personal life, very important to really fit in uh, the environment, watching local sports, <laughs> hanging out with like, local friends uh, and, yeah, and talking to customers, understanding their feedback, driving the interviews for people who will be joining. Very important to, yeah, be on the field, very close to prospect customers, employees, to make sure that you you live with them, you understand uh, everything, and you uh, you are on the same page. Right. So you mentioned local sports. So is it American football or baseball for you? <laughs> for me, it's more hockey. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that was. Um, yeah, that was a bit unusual, maybe. I don't know. Oh, well, that's... Oh, yeah. in, um, in the North you know, there is a lot of hockey. We... hockey. Hockey is very popular right. in, in the North I live in, in, in Boston, yeah. Right, for sure. Okay, since we're talking about the, uh, the overall sales industry and uh, also the customers that you're serving since you're in data and business intelligence. So what do you see right now? Uh, what are the trends in data analysis and how companies utilize the data? Yeah, so it's a very broad question, but what we see is that more and more companies need and do that. They, they every incident, every software, every product, every organization need to be analytics enabled. Uh, and this is what we're trying to solve, focusing on what we call customer-facing analytics, because we want all B2B organizations to be able to leverage the data they own, they create, they collect, to make sure that they uh, build the right analytics offering for their own customers. So we see that it's mandatory, it's a huge trend. As everybody is doing, as more and more people are doing it, it's like a snowball effect because you can be the only one not doing it. So yeah, it, uh, it drives a lot of investment, a lot of, yeah, lots of projects to be very fully analytics enabled. Okay, what about AI? AI is entering every other company in SaaS. What about Tuka? Yeah. How are you leveraging yeah, yeah, yeah. it in a way? <laughs> I would say so far we uh, we are not leveraging it. Maybe it's a mistake, but uh, there it's a lot, lot, lot of noise that buzzed uh, since a, a few years already. We prefer to be very focused on what we do today and partner with the right solution that brings some AI capabilities. We see AI as more like a features rather than product. Uh, we plan to add okay. more AI in, in the roadmap later in 2024, obviously, for sure. But yeah, we had a pretty packed roadmap this year and last year. So yeah, we didn't want to rush. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you chose to first absorb it and see what others are doing. Just exactly. Uh, Right. Okay. Maybe that's the smartest, <laughs> that's the smartest strategy of all, because yeah, it's just such a buzz. So everyone wants to jump in, uh, but nobody really knows like what to, 
where to integrate it so that, you know, it's life changing. Okay. Well, excited to see how you're going to do it in uh, 2024 then. All right. And yeah, I, I have a couple more questions for you. Is there any hack that has been really helpful for you for going from an early stage startup to a scale up? Maybe for you personally, because obviously I, I guess your role as a leader has changed over the years. Maybe you went from more hands-on CEO to a more strategical role. Um, so is there anything that you constantly go back to and something that maybe not so conventional, but works for you? <laughs> That's a very tough question. I would say for me, balance, personal and work-life balance is very important because you can be burned up. Uh, in the early years, I didn't have that uh, right balance. And since I have it, I think it makes me much more productive, much more yeah, sharp. So th that that's one thing. In that balance, sports is very important because you need to have like a good health and feel not only in your outer brain that you are doing lots of things, but also in your body. So for me, that, that's another uh, very important thing. And, and yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's very interesting. I was just at this tech conference and David Heinemeyer Hansen was one of the guests he joined remotely. And that was one of the questions, like what, how to navigate, how to balance, because like a lot of devs out there, everyone loves to code. Everyone loves to just jump into the product and just like code away for weeks. And that's exactly what he said, like get out, do some sports, <laughs> be active. Yeah. That will help you. <laughs> Just yes. like simple science. Yeah, simple hack. All right. All right. Absolutely agree with you. All right. And so far for you in this journey, what has been the biggest win and the biggest failure? Again, maybe for you as a founder or for Tukin? Yeah, so <laughs> biggest biggest win for me is the, the team we've built. Very happy to have scaled like a a team of people that are talented, committed, dedicated, and that have like lots of pleasure to work with. So for me, that's my biggest win, the team we've built. Biggest failure, the um, some custom, uh, customers we lost. <laughs> it's always a failure to see that when you have like a good product with like good usage, good value, and at the end, there is some customers that still decide to churn with irrational decisions uh, and they tell you that's an irrational decision that's a politic decision that's yeah for me like a big failure okay all right that's yeah that's kind of a, a new I, I don't think i've ever heard anyone turn for political reasons but okay maybe we will not discuss it here just yet <laughs> on a SaaS podcast but uh okay and what do you feel about this year because again something that came up uh yesterday during our uh ma the economical situation is not the best some founders well a lot of founders are impacted a lot of companies are impacted and a lot of founders were trying to get back to that kind of bootstrapper mindset become a bit more scrappy try to retain more customers rather than work on new features, maybe like add AI into the mix and, you know, try to 
pump up the product. So how do you feel about this year? Is it stabilizing? How was it for you? And what did you do to manage the whole situation? Yeah, so situation will be will be good. Uh, I would say it, it wasn't like a, a smooth journey in the sense that uh, lots of moving parts in the past, I would say at least two years between COVID, Ukraine, financing crisis. So the macroeconomic context is very uh, uh, harsh, I would say. What did we do? So adopting like a very clear uh, tight customer relationship in some sense, very close to our customers, listening very carefully to them, being very proactive in the communication. Yeah, that's very, that was very, very important to retain our customers. Okay. So you are doing something uh, for retention because again, lots of opinions on this podcast. Some say, you know, if they go, they go, you don't have to do anything because you ca you don't want to be no, no, clingy no. to your, to your no. customers. What do you do? Is there a retention strategy in place? Yes, yeah, so first, yeah, there is, and we invest uh, heavily thanks to our CSM team. Um, like I said, very proactive uh, quarterly business reviews, any communication around like if there is any incidents, make sure that we have like a very good response rate and, and timing when they have any inquiry. So yeah, so very important to monitor usage, drive more usage, drive, drive more use cases because the more they use, the more they use, the more value they extract and the more sticky we are. So yeah. Okay. All right. Well, what are you, yeah, again, let's get back a little bit to the KPIs. What are you tracking in order to get a hold of your customers and increase your retention? So we are tracking a usage. We are tracking yeah, usage from viewers, builders. We are tracking uh, all the usage metrics. We are obviously tracking our cohorts, our retention, gross net retention, and also from a dollar or logo perspective. All right. And you're doing it all with beautiful visualization yeah, by Tukin. Tukin, exactly. <laughs> all right. Okay. Well, if anyone in the audience wants to find you or try Tukin, where do they go? On our website, uh, tukintoko.com. And uh, we'd be very happy to engage with them. And what about, what if they want to talk to you about, well, ah, the product, maybe a possible yeah, partnership so they can, or... They can email me, charles.migliere at tukentoko.com and I, I try to be very responsive and to my email, so yeah, I should be answering. All right. Thank you. Thank you. And Thank I, you I hope much, after Anna. this podcast, yeah, after this podcast, you'll get quite a few uh, requests from interested parties so thank you for so. your story charles it's been, it's you, been great listening to you and excited to see what you're going to to do in 2024 thank you bye yeah thank you and take care that was yet another awesome conversation on sas unbound we're always looking for new guests to share their experiences we mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders and if you're one reach out to me directly at anna at sas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS group. 
a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.